In this episode, Nitesh Sharan, CFO at Soundhound, describes the importance of riding the right tailwinds, talks about building a people-centric culture at Soundhound, and emphasises why CFOs at hyper-growth companies must be thoughtful about where they place their bets. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. Nitesh, uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Ross. I'd uh, love to explore your journey to to being CFO at Soundtown because you've had uh, so many different positions at Nike and then in HP before that as well, where there was a very long stint. But at the very beginning, of course, you you didn't take the necessarily the classic route. The two of, often common routes then are either via audit into corporate finance or even sometimes investment banking. You started in consulting uh, before moving across. So could you speak a little bit about what that start was like and, and why you decided to move into corporate finance? You know, just going back a little bit, I grew up in the Midwest. I think out of undergrad, you know, had an emphasis in, in economics, finance. I had a, a business background. I actually interned at Hewlett Packard back when I was doing my bachelor's. And so I had exposure to the business world, to, to finance. Uh, but coming out of undergrad, I, I think consulting was one of those paths. It's sort of to be very open with you. It was for people who weren't really sure what they wanted to do. Great to get different exposure, to different industries. Based out of the Midwest, it was very heavy into chemicals and and steel manufacturing and resources, natural resources. It gave me the opportunity to kind of uh, go around the world a bit and, and see a variety of different clients at different scales. And, and it was a, it's just a great enriching experience. And and openly, I had a path that I wanted to go back for my business degree, and, and it's a feeder industry. And while I really enjoyed it, I did over time kind of say, hey, I probably wanted to go more to where you're, you're all the way through to completion on work. And what I mean by that is simply sometimes, you know, at the corporate environment, you have full accountability. And then when you come in as a consultant, you're you're there, you give advice, and then you move on to the next client. And, and I, I probably, when I went into business school, had that view of like moving into the corporate area was, was interesting. And so I explored that. And so coming out of business school, the way I remember the story, and it's 20 years ago now, to, to be very frank, I, I was looking at a few different things. Uh, I remember it as a December in Chicago, negative something. And I flew out to the Bay Area in California and it was 75 and sunny without a cloud in the sky. And said, yeah, let's do this now. But openly, uh, you know, that was probably part of it. But but I think the opportunity to go into corporate finance and since I had that prior experience at HP, it was a company that I highly had a, a lot of high regard for great history. A lot of the culture that's still rooted in a lot of tech companies 
was founded in the HP way and um, had a lot of pride in my time there. I, I did end up spending longer than I expected, quite frankly, 15 years. But that was probably a bit of the catalyst behind me ultimately shifting into corporate finance. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about that as well is that consulting is very fast paced. And as you and I'm sure you're always under pressure and it, there's lots of intellectual challenge, but you were working with very established traditional industries. So not only did you switch across that way, but you also switched across to what I'm sure was a very fast moving company by comparison. HP, of course, was really large, but it was at a point where they were growing quite significantly. And I think probably at the time close to being the, the largest computer manufacturer in the world at that point, or at least during your tenure there. Yeah, actually hit on a couple of things there that maybe I'll double click on. First is, yeah, I joined a few months before they announced the merger with Compaq, which did establish them as the largest uh, technology company in the world, I think, at the time. But to back up one sec to what you mentioned, my experience in, in consulting was across a variety of industries, but heavily in that that resource intensive, again, steel manufacturing. Steel manufacturing in the 90s was where, you know, so early days of uh, was their, you know, China steel dumping and, and low cost production that really disrupted the industry here. And it was very... And as you mentioned, a very mature industry. So the, the complex challenges were very different than technology, which was hyper growth. And in the 90s, obviously, uh, the dot-com boom going on. So openly for me, one of the things I, I anchor to even now is just the, the variety of experiences I've had. And those are across industries, as I mentioned, and even coming to Nike, getting the consumer uh, side, but even business models. So seeing those mature industries, I had the chance to go work in oil and gas, consumer packaged goods, uh, steel manufacturing, uh, other chemicals and so forth, um, auto, um, and then going into HP, which itself had multiple business models because it was a hardware software services business. Uh, as I mentioned, we had a compact merger, but over time it, it had a lot of acquisitions and expanded into different areas, software and services, uh, most notably. Um, and then even in, in Nike, you know, different business model shifts I joined. It's traditionally a very wholesale oriented business, but had aggressively been shifting to direct to consumer, which, which has different economics and, and being able to sort of look across all those different business models, different industries different experiences, mature industries, growth industries, all of that really, I think, is, is just continues to enrich my understanding of, you know, things that matter, what metrics matter, what, what things to look at as a, as a financial leader. And so it's certainly something that I think I continue to benefit and try to learn. And it seems in, in, implicit in what you're saying that there's this desire to learn and to grow through those experiences as part of your career choices, going from HP into Nike, and then, of course, now into, into Soundhound. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the the one common platform because um, I'm not sure what to characterize it, but I probably get more stressed when I feel my job is getting stale and I'm not growing as I do going through complex transactions or dynamic times or going through the financial crisis or the pandemic or you know, even uh, Soundhound taking the company public is itself a, a significant undertaking. And you know, I've always had that sort of uh, desire to grow and try new things. So my time at HP... I started out in the software business, which after, particularly after the compact merger was a smaller part of the business, but very strategic. It was one with, you know, higher margins, less capital intensive, real, you know, potential opportunity. And it was only 3% of revenue, but it was a greater percent of profit. And it was a strategic area they were trying to increasingly uh, lean into. And, you know, after doing that for a few years, I wanted to see the bigger behemoth that worked, all the different pieces. And so I decided to move into corporate financial planning role, which gave me exposure from a business unit to FP&A. Um, after doing that for a few years, I moved into treasury. After doing that for several years, I moved into investor relations, you know, on and on. I think that's sort of been the theme of my career. And simply because when different things come forward at me, 
later in my career in the last several years, uh, I've been able to sort of lean back at these experiences and go, okay, yeah, I kind of remember that. That was a little while ago, but I can dust off the, the, the books and, and dive in. More than anything else, I think it just gives me the confidence that I can dive into something and figure it out. If I don't know it, I can go ask and, and tap on resources who can help. And it, and actually, based on those experiences, it, you've pretty much touched on all of the major domains of finance. So at one point or another, you have you have worked in that or or led led an aid a team within that. You know, I, quite frankly, you mentioned earlier one of the traditional paths, and I think it's it's gone through cycles. In my own view, history at least, you know, what uh, controllers tend to be that used to be the typical path, and there was treasures, and then there's business finance, and like it does shift over time. I have not had as much of the the accounting background or the audit background, certainly. And, uh, so, so, but knowing that also, you know, I come with full awareness on, on the things that I don't know very well. And, and where, where that is the case, I have to absolutely lean in and trust my team. And, and especially as I've, I've grown into lead larger and larger teams, you know, the reality is I, I can't know everything. I don't know everything. I'm very aware. I don't know a lot. And so to get great talent and, and teammates and partners who can help shepherd the journey together is, is extremely important. And, and as you've been around, like, so you've obviously seen many, as you mentioned, the, the different waves of corporate finance and the certain direction that people have taken. One th- recurring theme is that the role of the CFO is evolving over time as well. So when you were at the very beginning of your career, it was a, it was a very different, it was more, more about stewardship and operational excellence. Whereas now when you speak with, with CFOs like yourself, a huge part of it is about directing company strategy. It's very external orientated. Often it's a spokesperson as well as an advisor to, to the CEO. So uh, have how have you seen that role of CFO and the head of finance evolve over your like vast period in corporate finance? Yeah, I, I tend to see it maybe one way where I agree with that uh, premise and one way but maybe I don't necessarily. So I'll start with the latter, which is um, I think the two tenets of financial management, I think that have probably always been true are that we need to be stewards of capital allocation and risk management. And I think that's probably been true for you know a long time in terms of what's important to the CFO function or the finance function at large. And I think that continues to be really important. Now, I think when the world evolves and capital is cheap, and you know what we've seen over the last twenty years of low interest rates, and uh, you know that that does make that capital allocation element different than maybe in times past when interest rates are higher. So I think. Accordingly, the CFO needs to evolve. Um, when risks become much different in a globalized world where disruption because of a pandemic in Asia can completely disrupt you know, the global supply chain and how products get to Europe or the US, then I think that risk management piece of the job also can dramatically change. Uh, so in one sense, I think just the elements of, of the core tenets of what finance are can evolve. But then to your point, I also agree that 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 the expectations and what a CFO can bring to the table also um, have evolved and can evolve because in a lot of ways, it, it is a maybe one of the very few, if not the only one on sort of a in a C-suite that can agnostically look across all the disciplines and say, okay, here's a here's an accountable way, a measurable way to to look at trade-offs, to navigate a world of uncertainty and make the right choices that we can try to objectively, as objectively as we possibly can, make a decision. And because of that role, it can uniquely play an uh, impactful role in, in management leadership and in shepherding the company in a certain direction. And so, so I think 
there's probably been more and more acknowledgement of that opportunity that's expanded the mandate of CFOs. And that's what gets me excited because I think in my current situation with SoundHound in particular is a, is a hyper growth company that's looking to scale, um, you know, for, I understand shareholder value and, and stakeholder value and, and know that growth is imperative. And so anything I can do from, again, the capital allocation risk management standpoint that helps shepherd that growth journey or, or catalyze it is, is priority number one. And, uh, I think that's just one of many examples of how you could see the, I can envision more and more of this function expanding to its mandate. You hear a lot about um, ESG or, or other areas where as, as people shift and talk about stakeholder management broader than just shareholder management, again, I think the CFO can play a, an increasing role that will just continue to expand. And you, you touch on Soundhound and the fact that it's a hyper-growth company. And, and that's a really interesting difference from the previous companies you've been in as well, because with H with HP and Nike, they're global companies, famous, like huge scale, like world leading in their categories. And then and, and by their very nature, they've they've already got a lot of market share. So it's a different game. It's not hyper-growth in the same way. So what was that transition like going into uh, into the, a hyper-growth environment where you probably had to adjust your approach somewhat, the, the, the ones that you've applied in the past? Yeah, again, I think there's a lot of differences and then there's some commonalities. So I'll start with the commonalities. All three of those companies are, are built on great innovation and great technology, uh, even Nike, you know, to, to build a shoe that helps power an athlete to, to break the two-hour marathon, like requires innovation and technology. And, and so all of them start with that great product is the pillar that really serves consumer. And, and I think that foundation being a commonplace, I think the other thing that's a commonplace is uh, they're, they're deep-seated and well-noted founder companies that, that have, even in HP's case, Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard, you know, founded in 1939. But, but that culture, even going through a lot of M&A and divestitures, it was very deep-seated. I remember CEO laid into the, the sort of history there would often cite that as like, it's hard to break founders culture, especially at some, at a, at a place like HP where it's so deep seated and at Nike, it was one step closer. I, you know, I, I had the good fortune, Phil Knight was still active in the company at the board level and, and his footprint was, was deep. And I got the pleasure of working very closely with Mark Parker, the CEO for, for over 15 years, which legendary CEO. And obviously he had been in the company for a long time. So you, you know, his footprint and the, the founding team's footprint was just running deep uh, within the company. And then here at SoundHound, it is founder still led. The three co-founders that, that founded the company in 2005 still run the company. And, and what I find amongst those two things is sort of deep innovation, deep technology core, and then sort of founder culture. What I what I personally think is very powerful there is, is it's set on a foundation that's very substantive. It's about serving consumers with distinctive technology and then secondarily, it's it's with founders who have a great balance between vision and where we're trying to drive for the long term and pragmatism of what's needed in the near term. And I think, you know, we often talk about false binaries of like, is it short termism or long term? You know, what what's the right way? And the reality of is that you need both. So so those common pillars are great. But but now to get to the contrast, which you're absolutely right, you know, and when you're a mature companies, you, you actually have to incubate those hyper growth elements so that because the future is constantly evolving, right? You need to you can't stay stale. We see too many companies who, who try to hang on uh, the innovator's dilemma, try to hang on to their old profit pools for too long, and, and that they ultimately the world work, works against them. You know, Nike, I think, again, was great at transforming from a wholesale-oriented uh, structure to a, a direct-to-consumer, digital-led one. And so you're always kind of trying to channel the growth, but within an infrastructure where you have to manage the cash flow pools of the past. 
now at Soundhound, you don't have that, I'll just call it a burden, I suppose, of a legacy infrastructure. It's about really going out and disrupting. And and in our case, you know, our, our vision is voice enabling the world and changing the next uh, modality with which humans and computers interface, which we think increasingly will be with voice and, and conversational natural language intersections. And so, you know, the demands are different in the sense that Quite frankly, we're at a company that is investing cash. We're consuming cash today. So that means you have to be very pragmatic of, of how with the very limited resources. When you're at a Nike and you're double A credit, you, you know, resources are quite unlimited. I think in a, in a growth stage company like Soundhound, that's not the case. And so you have to be very thoughtful about where to, to place your bets and where to invest your resources. Um, but then again, it's it, there's a lot of clarity because the value is going to accrete from growth. So so whatever we need to do to fuel growth is is the imperative that matters most. And I presume as well, from the perspective of you as CFO, like leading the team in, in say, Nike, it, it, it was more about continuing to run the team or transforming in the team because it would be established already. Whereas in Soundhound, you, there's probably a lot that wasn't there because that's the nature of hypergrowth is that you start off at this stage, you outgrow your business model, you outgrow your team and, and you have to fill those gaps and you're constantly stretching. So has it felt like more of a, in your time at Soundtown, more of an experience of building things from scratch than your prior companies? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was one of the, I'd say, three main things that were extremely, extremely exciting to me for this opportunity is because I do think, uh, if I back up one step, I think what we're living through just even um, uh, socially, culturally, how people are, you know, whether it's great resignation or whatnot, people living through the pandemic and just sort of identifying what matters most to them. There's a lot of change going on. And I, I think we're just in the very early days of realizing what structurally that'll be for the long term. And I also think in traditional environments, there generally is a slow reaction to that, a slow reaction to understanding what that means. And and I think there's a great opportunity at Soundhound, again, as we're building, not just finance function, but more broadly of being very uh, people-centric and saying, what, what really is it that our employees value and how do we build uh, a structure that supports and helps people thrive in their careers and personal lives? And so I think we're, we're taking a very uh, diligent way of understanding that. And, and then to, to more specifically to your question from a finance perspective, I, I definitely uh, believe that's how I want to build a team. And I am, in a lot of ways, you know, from scratch, trying to build up a company financial infrastructure to enable where we're going. And that means as we go public, there's demands of public requirements and controls and SOX compliance and so forth. And then there's just what's required to help scale. You know, I know part of your emphasis is technology. And so I, I always look at it as what's that best intersection between human capability and technology and how do you intersect those so you can scale most meaningfully in the most efficient matter and most um, diligent matter. But it's, again, not a one or the other. You really need great technology, and then you need people who can harness that great technology to, to find the, the coveted insights and not you know, necessarily people who have to tick and tie every number before we can make decisions. We also you know, you have to be able to navigate uncertainty and make decisions. And, and you touch on like a few pieces there that are fascinating and, and huge topics in the moment. That One of them was the great resignation and, and that that phenomena, um, whether you call it that or not, about people reevaluating what they're doing, um, and of course, like the 
we had very recently um, someone on, uh, Steve Gallucci, who looks after the CFO program for Deloitte. And he was mentioning that, of course, the retention of your best people and then trying to find great people to fill the open positions is one of the, the top topics for CFOs. I'm sure it's always a top topic, but it seems to be particularly high right now in one of their surveys. Every, it's on the top of everyone's agenda, every senior leader and executive. So what are some of the ideas that, that you've been toying with or some of the, maybe even the trends that you've seen as you've been trying to think about as a company, not just finance, about becoming more people-centric and creating an environment where you can keep your best and recruit the best? Yeah, I think that first, I try not to go sideways on this question, but I've learned because I was at HP where I'll be momentarily critical you know, in a lot of ways, it didn't capitalize on the internet revolution as quickly as maybe it could have. It didn't revolution, you know, capitalize on the mobile revolution as quickly as it potentially could have it given its position in the PC industry. And similarly for cloud, you could argue, you know, and I think that sort of ingrained in me the importance of riding with tailwinds. And if you're the last person who's pushing, trying to be in, in elevators that require manual operators, you're probably going to you know, struggle versus if you're early on into new innovations, you'll benefit. And I'll, I'll now, that was a long-winded way of answering your question of like, what are the tailwinds here? I think one of the big realities we've come to appreciate over the last couple of years is we can work differently. And it was forced, you know, shoved down our throats, whatever you want to call it, this sort of dream world. But, you know, you're getting forced to stay at home and, and you still got to do stuff. But I did think it opened the idea. It's not like the virtual sort of that, you know, virtual meeting technology and not, it's been around for a long time. It really required a sort of whole world to come to, to reality. And I think for a lot of people in their personal lives and the personal situations, whether they have you know, people at home who, who require additional support or they have kids or whatever that situation is, I think we've come to, or, you know, it's, I was just at a meeting yesterday. It was wonderful. Where, you know, a kid who just jumps into the middle of a, a Zoom meeting and it, everybody loves it, you know, or your dog or your cat jumps in there. And we've all, I think, just, just come to say, that's okay. That's great. And I think it's a healthy thing. And so I think it starts with like, saying what matters to people, what matters to their lives, this intersection, it's, it's blurrier than ever between work life and home life. And how do we make sure we set up the right boundaries and uh, still, you know, deliver what's needed. But I do think it starts with what matters to people. And so we were actively surveying, you know, what, what do people want, you know, and we were open in, in the structure we're, we're applying at Soundhound at least is, is virtual work for you. Some people, they don't want that, right? They want to be in the office. FS or they want hybrid. Um, so we're, we're surveying, we're understanding the pulse of our employees and we're trying to be flexible and address it. And by the way, I think what's really important there too is I see a lot of companies who are just punting decisions every three months, like, okay, here's what's going on with the virus. And I think it's important to keep agility, you know, there that the answers we're not going to know for sure. So we just, as long as we stay flexible and keep listening and communicating with each other, um, I think that's really important. And I, the other point I'll make, while it is difficult, I agree with the importance of maintaining your top talent and then Trying to get talent, which is hard in a in a market like this, where you know low unemployment and a lot of people have a lot of choices. One of the silver linings of that, though, is because we're able to operate effectively in a virtual world, is it opens the aperture of the number of candidates out there now. That you know, I have really no idea where you are. I don't know if you have any idea where I am. It doesn't really matter. We're having a great conversation. So uh, I think in terms of the pool of candidates that we can look at and identify and consider, I think that has just opened up much more widely. And frankly, now that I think more people than ever are opening their minds to different opportunities. That also, I think, increases the pool. Now, to close and get people or to maintain people, it really, I think, is important to 
to try to go a little deeper on what inspires people, what what motivates them, what matters, and 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 I also think then from how we, you know, think about or organizational development, career management, talent management, all needs to intersect and evolve with, you know, I, I'm not sure of the future of annual performance reviews or anything like that. I, I'm, uh, you know, deep enough to, to have a point of view, but I do, I, well, I get, I give a point of view, which is, I think we often talk, at least in my experience about, you need to give regular feedback and all those things. And, you know, those, those requirements are going to be more and more important because ultimately, and it's also going to have to extend beyond what was that project you work, worked on and how did you do it? It's got to really start with how are you doing and how are things going in your life? And I think as a, as a leader, as a manager, you know, I, I certainly think that's increasingly important, or at least I found it that way for the last couple of years. It's a fascinating topic, and we've heard others like you talk about the the how the opening up of that talent pool has so many consequences. Many many you could expect, but many unforeseen ones as well. I'm in the UK, and in the UK, one of the things historically we have is just an incredibly centralised economy in London, uh, which isn't very dissimilar to the US because the US has hubs, but it's, it's very decentralised. And what you can see is there's already this. It's almost like they call it the the political PR phrase is a levelling up. Because what's happening is that there's more of a distribution of people and opportunities and so on outside of London because of the flexibility that's emerging. And that, and you can see that happening. And you even hear people and CFOs like yourself in the States talk about at one point they would have asked everyone in finance or, or key G&A roles and leadership roles to come to headquarters, but now they're approaching it differently. And one unforeseen consequence of that is in many cases, it's becoming easier to create a more diverse team, which most, if not all leaders want to do. And that's just like such a surprising benefit to this new way of working. I don't know if you had recognized or seen any of that in in what you've um, been doing at SoundHound. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I I think being in uh, diverse cities alone, not talking about gender or race, I think gives diversity, which is another dimension. In in fact, again, in my humble opinion, we talk very superficially around diversity. Now, I, I believe we're at a stage where we do need to increase that the measures. We need more female in Silicon Valley leadership roles. We need underrepresented groups in, in all positions at all leadership levels. But we also need diversity of experiences, diversity of personalities, diversity of perspectives. All those things are so powerful. I'll just give you one small example that's recently happened because I am aggressively trying to build out my team. And I have uh, two people on my team who are phenomenal uh, at what they do. And every time I put them on panels now, I think it's like three in a row where they've given me the complete opposite opinion of the candidate. One would be like, strong, yes. One is like, no. And I think that's wonderful. That's exactly why you want diversity, because I get totally different perspectives. And, and when you double click and you go exactly what, what's behind either the yes or the no, you get this beautiful uh, array of, of different perspectives that are all just very valuable. And I think we, we need to, yeah, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the opportunity now with remote work that you can get more of that. And I think it's, it's just imperative that we continue to try to you know, grow in that, in that area for, for all decisions. And then think touching on that topic of your team and building out your team as well, the Remote work and then that distributed workforce is one facet to it. But again, being in a in a scale up environment and then all, almost having the opportunity to 
you in your previous roles, you inherited a lot of the structures, and then you would again you would have to transform it or redesign it. But now you're prob- you've probably I, I'm I'm presuming, but you've inherited a lot less structure, so you're designing from scratch, and you're you have like that blank canvas. So does that then mean that you have a, a different approach when it comes to who you hire, which profiles you're looking for, and the type of like, beyond the, the the domain expertise, the type of characteristics that you're looking for that that can help you build like a world class finance team in a hyper growth environment. Yeah, I think there's some things that are continuous of what I look for in, in talent and candidates, but absolutely there's a little bit of an emphasis on the creative and the ability to scale and build. And uh, so, so what's common is I think I've always tried to hire for attitude, for agility, you know, and, and sort of for competence maybe. I've certainly added, especially here, the need for somebody who's got scalability. And what I mean by that is, and well, I will combine agility and scalability. You know, I, I mentioned at the beginning, like the commonality between HP, Nike, and SoundHound are great innovation and founder-led cultures and so forth. But the other thing I've come to appreciate in, in what makes great companies is you need you need the agility to capitalize on opportunities when they come, and you need the tenacity to take it to to its complete you know thought or fruition of, of whatever that deliverable is. And, and I think similarly underneath that, you need talent that can do that. And at a smaller company, you need more of that meaning you need the tenacity to solve the issues of today because when you're in a this phase of a company, there's always issues that are coming up that are top priorities. And you, you need to have this lens of now and later together, which is we're trying to stabilize and build an infrastructure that hopefully a year from now, the issues that we're chasing down will be automated or improved process-wise. And so somebody who's got that agility to do both at the same time is not easy uh, to find quite openly. And that's one of the things I emphasize a lot. You know, similarly, attitude. I've always sort of believed in this. Um, if you have this attitude of optimism, then you can persevere through a lot. And, and I think that's it's benefited me in my career. I, I love the saying, you know, keep your face always towards the sunshine and shadows will fall behind you. Uh, because I really believe there's always going to be challenging times. And, and if you can sort of try to find that silver lining or at least persevere through, you'll, if nothing else, learn a ton through the experience. And hopefully that in itself is, is a real reward. So attitude, agility, but to the scalability point, I'm hiring people who I'm hiring for the job today, but expect that within six, 12 months, the job's going to be much bigger. And it's the job's going to be bigger. And I'm hiring almost with the, the principle of this is sort of the first of many, meaning I want each of these people to be bringing in their great talent underneath them or with them. And and so I have to probably put a little bit more of that angle than I ever had to in my prior lives. And the last thing I'll say is, again, to this point of clarity with SoundHound, we've built awesome tech for 15 years. It's just really differentiated tech in the marketplace, and we have deep competitive modes. But we built it on the backs of a handful of business development people, including the CEO and co-founder himself. Uh, we're really now at a scale. We just hired a chief revenue officer earlier this year who himself has great experience with CEO of the company, took it from 25 million to 250 million. Super excited to have him on board. He's building out his sales marketing function uh, more comprehensively. And again, that is a core critical part of whether we're going to be successful or not. And so I need the full finance function to sort of know that that is priority number one. How do we enable and fuel growth? So even if you're actually on the accounting side, your job is obviously to close the books effectively, to go through the audits and, and track and, and provide information. But part of that also is to, to have an angle to, all right, when we're thinking about complex revenue recognition, 
how do I synthesize that? And then software that is complicated. And so how do you synthesize some of that and translate it so that the sales and business development folks, when they're working on deals, can develop deals the right way that makes it simpler all the way through that maximizes value, et cetera. So, so again, all of I have to continuously hire with that angle of what is it that serves the greater good of the company and make sure that the talent coming in sort of are fully aligned and in service of what we're all trying to do together. I like that. And I like the idea of like you're hiring not for this role, but in many ways for the next role that the person will take so that they can grow with you and with the company. Yeah. And that's exciting because I, I, I think of the culture here. One of the things that attracted me to it, and it's only been reinforced since I've been here, is this nice intersection of people who are hungry and humble. And, and so similarly, when I look for teammates to add in, I want them to be uh, similarly hungry and want to grow in their careers, want to expand the function, want to expand the business, but have all the humility in the world to understand there's a lot of challenges on the way. You can't do it yourself. We need to ask the questions. We need to have a safe environment where we can grow and prosper together. And so so those tenants are also really important. Then going back to one of the the earlier points you made as well, which is the, the, the interaction, which is of course fundamental to SoundHound as well, but the interaction of human and technology and that the, you're you're obviously playing at that at the interface, which is around voice, but the the technology is is clearly a big factor of what we see transforming and changing the way that finance teams work as well. And one of the theses that we're often like playing with here is that the idea is like that sales and marketing and engineering and so on, they've had a whole raft of technologies and there's still many more services coming, but they went through this raft of like digitization and transformation um, and automation as well over the last 10, 15 years, if not even before that for sales. Whereas a lot of the GNA functions like finance and HR, they had tools. Of course, we had technology, but there wasn't that rate of innovation. But in the last five, six years, um, there seems to be this whole new raft of services coming up and that's transforming the way that finance teams think about their work. So we, we we toy with that and we're trying to understand the influence of technology on the way that finance teams are working and, and where they see the opportunities. Again, given your background where you've, uh, you were an Accenture and you obviously you, you were in and around technology and working for a company with that as part of your, your very fabric, how do you view the use of technology within your team and right across the, the GNA part of a business? Yeah, I think the way you, way you lay that out with my background, I think I'm going to disappoint on this answer. So I apologize right up front. I'm in a continuous evolution of trying to figure out the best way to bring those two together. And I do look at different tools, but I often, I'm still in search. I guess I'll be open. And, and particularly at SoundHound, I think we have a real opportunity similar to what we were talking about the team and build it from the ground up with the technology ecosystem we can. So the good thing, at least, you know, here we have a foundation from, you know, the sales pipeline using Salesforce from the financial planning, using Anaplan, we use NetSuite on the ERP. Like we have some of the core tools that, uh, that we can leverage. You know, I think there's probably opportunity on some of the analytics and some of the, the, like the payments platforms and so forth that we can, we can leverage more and more that'll continue to be part of the journey as we evaluate. Um, I, Again, do believe it. it's never just the tool, though. It's really the intersection of the person and the tool. Uh, my person who heads FP&A, she's just, she's just phenomenal at, at understanding systems, customizing systems, designing systems to get the right information. But more importantly to me is she can then quickly extract information, synthesize it, not wait to get the whole answer complete, but just like, hey, let me show you this and here's what it's kind of doing. And it's in that dialogue that 
we're, we're uncovering a lot of insights around the business model and, you know, what KPIs should we be focused on? And, and, and really, I, so I think more and more it, it is the tool plus the person. And I think the younger, my view, at least the, the great thing that's happening is a lot of younger generation folks coming in, understanding the data science and that intersection of some maybe traditional uh, discipline like finance, along with some technology connection, computer science connection is super empowering. Openly, I, I, I was a treasurer at Nike and used to, my, one of my favorite things is to it's actually, I openly say treasury was my favorite thing to do in my career. And I, and I always try to stay close to it, but I'd have a lot of conversations with other treasurers from mega cap companies. And we'd always talk about on the horizon, how people are hiring more people with Python backgrounds and to do stuff. And, and we go, Oh, what are they actually doing? That sounds great. And you'd hear this, like, well, one person actually got an intern to modernize the way they look at pension underfunding or something. And there's a project you're like, okay, that's very cool. But it never, I don't, I have not at least seen that it has scaled yet. I still think we're very early on where we can go with that. And again, I think what's really important is we don't over pivot to the technology side where we're like, great, look at the tool and look at the reports, but there's 80 reports and you're not sure what to do with any of them. Uh, when I was, you know, at Nike, we we did at one point in time, I, I, we used to have foreign exchange with a is it you know com- company that was in many many countries a lot of different currency exposures it was a big part of the, the value actually very complicated to understand too but we were able to evolve some of our FX reporting into Power BI and just having it on my on my phone easily accessible where I could track well, what rate do we assume then okay the rates have changed and what's going on that was very empowering and it wasn't that I needed to exactly know with predict you know perfect insight where do I think the euro is going to go because nobody can know that or at least certainly not with, with the set of information I have, um, but it was just seamlessly sort of having it available and accessible was a, was a big victory. But I do believe, again, I, I, the principle I start with is it's got to be both great technology, but people who can harness that technology and then quickly get to some conclusions around it, even without all the information. I think those sort of tenants need to come together to, to, as we continue to kind of make that it's a really interesting observation because then it might actually even shape and speaking with some of your peers and previous guests is that it, it can it can shape the type of team or the profile that you bring in so sometimes in fpna we've heard cfos say that they've actually got like a, like almost a sub team within that who are data scientists or who did a phd in statistics and obviously are developers as well and that's something of course that I mean, finance has always been a technical domain and it's always been super analytical, but adding in the like these new domains of analytics uh, and then coupling that with like the immense levels of data that you've got now, which are probably greater than ever before, it's, it looks, it sounds as if there's a huge opportunity there to do so much more. And we're only just on the cusp of it. That's my impression. I think we're just on the cusp of it. I might throw a, a slightly different tweak, though I... I've seen that both at HP and Nike, where we had dedicated data teams and so forth. And I think this idea that people get a lot of different experiences because too much specialization in a technology domain that doesn't understand, well, what's the real impact to the customer? What's the real impact to shareholder value in itself is not helpful because people do the best, you know, analytics and so forth. Uh, so I really think, and, and openly, I have young kids, so I think about, well, what's 20 years from now going to look like in their careers? And I think having a real strong foundation cross-disciplinary, across multiple things with an intersection with technology, that's where success will lie, not necessarily continue to fragment in our own little silos what everybody does, and they really only understand their silos because everybody then has their own agenda and their objectives of what success is. It's then how do you intersect that all together? 
I think the thesis of like a technology will solve that is inaccurate. It really has to be the compounding between humans and technology. And so Nitesh, the, the as we're we're drawing obviously the interview to a close, you you touch on like thinking out uh, twenty years, and of course advising your children on on where they can go. What advice would you have? We often like to ask uh, CFOs in your position. What advice would you have to to those listening that would like to emulate you and perhaps be one day become a CFO? And and what type of things would do you think they need to do so that they can be a success in that position? Yeah, first I will say, go with your passion. You know what? I, I think it shines through if you if you really enjoy what you do. If you if you lean in in your conversations and you have enthusiasm. People gravitate to that, and that's not a very technical answer, but I think that matters more than anything else. Complementing that, I say having an attitude of running to the fire or going at challenges and experiences. My uh, career, not only did I have a lot of diverse experience, but I had a lot of challenging experiences, and that benefited me because I, in retrospect, and just there was so much I learned from it. So, so second principle I probably apply is run to challenges. Uh, I really think more and more importantly, what was a benefit to me was a great set of mentors that that built and instilled in me a great foundation of principle that, you know, especially in this function, integrity and character matters a lot. And so never compromise on that. There's no need to. I, I saw a lot of successful leaders who who led with that and and had humility along the way. And, and it, it always just empowered me that, that that's the right way that you can drive success. And then I, I do. I'll go back to the technology finance thing. I think the one different thing from history, if, if you kind of run to different experiences, if you're always willing to go to the challenge, if you do it with a great foundation of principles, probably more and more for the next 20 years, this ability of finance leaders to leverage technology and and scale with the right insights at the right time, you know, hopefully on your mobile, you know, that you've got it at the blink of an eye, enough information that makes you write makes you write more often. You know, because I, I think the difference sometimes they say it in sports. It's I think it's similar in business. Like the difference between the winner and the person who just didn't make it is sometimes fractional in difference. And so having a lot of that uh, benefit of information and insights real time will be increasingly important, I believe. So uh, a leader who can bring that intersection between. But but you know, by the way, I don't. If it pivots too much to technology and you don't understand the foundations of what matters in, in driving value, uh, it won't benefit at all. So you really need both. So those are just a few thoughts. I think it's brilliant advice for, for our listeners. Nitesh, uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you again for having me. It was great chatting. Great chat. One last thing. We want to hear from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We'd love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.